I've titled my series for this December, The Heart of Christmas. And I want to take us to several, several truths that God brings out in the Christmas story and try to understand what Christmas is about in a little deeper way. It's not about firstness. It's not about getting all of the, getting all of the best buys. And we know that. And we know that Christmas is about Christ coming into the world, but I want to emphasize a theme in Christ's forgive, in, in Christ coming into the world today that I think is absolutely crucial to the Christmas story. And that's this, that Christmas is about God's forgiveness. Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to begin today. Matthew 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man or a righteous man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, verse 20 While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is a contraction of the word Jehovah, and the word for salvation, God saves or Jehovah saves. This first piece of the Christmas story tells us why forgiveness is at the heart of Christmas. It's because we're sinners. We need to be saved. The need to be saved is summed up by saying that we are sinners. The original agreement with mankind in the Garden of Eden was this, obey or die. Let's change the wording a bit to include all that we know from the Bible about uh, about salvation and about condemnation. If you sin, you will be under the condemnation of both physical and spiritual death. And just in case you're not sure if you're a sinner, or if you were a sinner, let's look at God's original list of sin and find out. In Exodus 20, we have what has come to be known as the Ten Commandments, and of course we could look at the whole Old Testament law, which had approximately 626 commands, but these ten form the foundation. And the first one is this, you shall have no other gods before me. God expects us to worship him alone, to never put something else in the place of complete worship to him. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. God says that we should worship him as a spirit. John chapter 4, God is a spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Coming from Greece a couple of weeks ago, the Greek Orthodox Church, one of their distinctive marks, if you don't know it, is called icons. 
And icons are pictures of the scripture, pictures of saints, so-called, and they're all over the church. If this was a Greek Orthodox church, the walls and even the ceiling would be literally covered with these pictures. And people venerate the pictures. The word venerate means essentially to give worship to those pictures. Now, we don't do that in this country. We might have some other carved image that we bow down to. But God says, no, no image of God. Uh, we don't have pictures of Jesus because we don't know what he looked like. But also because God says, worship him as a spirit. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. To use the name God or Jehovah or Lord or Jesus Christ in a way other than worship, in a way other than testimony, is to take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I believe based on the book of Hebrews that when you put your faith in Christ, you receive the Sabbath rest of God and that to believe in Christ is to keep the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, the seventh day, Saturday, was to be a day of rest from work. And so God expects us to rest from our work by believing in Christ. Number six, honor your father and your mother. Expand it into obeying your father and mother when you're in their home. In Ephesians chapter six, you shall not murder. I preached a sermon, I preached through the Ten Commandments one time, and my dad used to call me up and say, what are you preaching on this week, son? I said, well, I'm preaching on murder. And, you know, to an old school preacher like him, that was kind of a shocking topic. And he said, well, what are you going to say? I'm going to say I'm against it. You shall not commit adultery, real plain and simple. You shall not steal in any form. You shall not bear false witness or lie. You shall not covet. And the coveting command comes with a series of delineations. God's Ten Commandments. Now, many people in the world would like to look at the Ten Commandments. Many people would like to say, well, you know, I I keep the Ten Commandments. And, uh, of course, the keeping of those Ten Commandments goes like this. Well, no one's perfect. Therefore, my near perfection is as good as possible and will be acceptable to God. Well, James talks about that kind of an idea when he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, which is, Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said this was a summary of half of the law. And if we look at the Ten Commandments, the second half have to do with our relations with one another. And so this is the positive command. The, the, the Ten Commands are, you might call them the negatives, things not to do. This is the thing to do. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality... And in James 2, he's talking about people who are prejudiced. He says, if you show partiality, you commit sin. And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of the whole law. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Here's the truth, folks. God gave us the law so we could all see that we are sinners. 
We are all sinners in need of forgiveness. If you're here today and you've never considered yourself a sinner, I wish that you would, because if you can see yourself as somebody who has broken God's commands, then you are prepared to receive God's forgiveness. We are all sinners in needs of forgiveness. What is the means of the forgiveness that comes to us? On what basis can God forgive? Well, in Hebrews 9, we read this. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no taking away. There is no remission of sin. One of the great theologians of my generation, uh, who's with the Lord now, Lewis Berry Schaefer, said this, and I, I want to quote from him at length because he he nailed something down in, in words that I have not grasped fully. This is the major distinction which exists between divine forgiveness and human forgiveness. At best, human forgiveness can do no more than to pass over, waive, or abandon any and all penalty that exists. In such forgiveness, the injured party relinquishes all claim to any form of satisfaction which otherwise might be demanded or imposed upon the offender. In other words, he says this, in human forgiveness, if I come to Derek and I say, Derek, you've, you've hurt my feelings, and Derek says, I'm sorry, then I say, I forgive you, and we walk away. I've, I've let it go. But what he says is not present is payment for the sin. He says, that's human forgiveness. Such forgiveness, I love this phrase, such forgiveness, so far as it ever exists, is a voluntary gratuity. A voluntary gratuity in which the offended party surrenders all claim to compensation. On the other hand, divine forgiveness is never extended to the offender as an act of leniency, nor is the penalty waived. Since God, being infinitely holy and upholding his government, which is founded on undeviating righteousness, cannot make light of sin. Divine forgiveness is therefore extended only when the last demand of penalty against the offender has been satisfied. Divine forgiveness is the taking away of sin and its condemnation from the offender by imputing the sin and imposing its righteous judgments on another, which is Christ. I don't know about you, but I've always conceptualized of God removing my sin, but I haven't had a strong image that when God takes it off of me, he puts it on to Christ. And because Christ paid for my sin, therefore I can be forgiven. God didn't just take away my sin, he transferred it to Christ. That's why Isaiah 53 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In the original Hebrew that, that almost reads like this, we said he was out of his mind. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. When we read this, the name of Christ 
and we understand the name of Christ, the name of Jesus that God saves, and we understand that He came to save, what we understand is He came knowing He would take our sins upon Himself. God took them off of us and put them on Him. The most recent recipient of the Medal of Honor was Army Staff Sergeant Salvatore. Help me out, Raul. How do I pronounce his last name? Gyunta. Okay, thank you. And uh, here's the citation. Specialist Salvatore Gyunta distinguished himself conspicuously by gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life and above and beyond the call of duty in action with an armed enemy in the Karigandal Valley, Afghanistan, October 25, 2007. While conducting a patrol as team leader, Specialist Gunta and his team were navigating through harsh terrain when they were ambushed by a well-armed and well-coordinated insurgent force. Seeing that his squad leader had fallen and believing he had been injured, Specialist Gunta exposed himself to withering enemy fire and raced toward his squad leader, helped him, helping him to cover and administering medical aid. While administering medical aid, enemy fire struck Specialist Gunta's body armor and his secondary weapon. Without regard for the ongoing fire, Specialist Gunta engaged the enemy before prepping and throwing grenades, using the explosions for cover in order to conceal his position. Attempting to reach additional wounded fellow soldiers who were separated from the squad, Specialist Gunta and his team encountered a barrage of enemy fire that forced them to the ground. The team continued forward, and upon reaching the wounded soldiers, Specialist Gunta realized that another soldier was still separated from the element. Specialist Gunta then advanced forward on his own initiative. As he crested the top of a hill, he observed two insurgents carrying away an American soldier. He immediately engaged the enemy, killing one and wounding the other. Upon reaching the wounded soldier, he began to provide medical aid as his squad caught up and provided security. Specialist Ginta's unwavering courage, selflessness, and decisive leadership, while under extreme enemy fire, were integral to his platoon's ability to defeat an enemy ambush and recover a fellow American soldier from the enemy. How would you feel if you were a soldier pulled to safety by that kind of heroism? Would you be grateful? Well, what I want you to understand today is whatever emotion you feel as you think about this man risking his life for his fellows, Jesus Christ did that for all of us and all of the world. He not only risked his life, but as most Medal of Honors winners do, he gave his life. And he gave it for us. The means of forgiveness was expensive. It was the death of Christ in your place. And as if the cost of forgiveness wasn't significant enough, we also need to understand the timing of forgiveness. Look at these incredible verses from the last book of the Bible. All who dwell on the earth will worship Christ, 
those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain when? From the foundation of the world. Would you just think for a minute about thinking ahead? Here's the foundation of the world. Over there is the cross. If I understand the biblical chronology and time, we're somewhere around four to 5,000 years from this point to that point. And of course, with God, one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day God exists outside of time. But there was a point at which God said, someday a sacrifice will need to be made and Jesus Christ, you will be the person who will make the sacrifice. Can you imagine the anticipation? Have you ever had something negative on your horizon? Something unwelcome? 1 Peter 1, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. He said there was a plan in place to save you before you were ever born. Before the foundation of the world. And Titus 1. In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. How do you suppose God felt when he planned, God the Father, when he planned to punish God the Son for our sin? God the Father demonstrated his love for us by planning for Jesus to die and by planning to suffer himself the excruciating pain of separation from Christ while he poured out his wrath onto Christ. That's expensive love. But the cost of forgiveness gets even higher. The cost of forgiveness gets even higher for God. What does God get from us for forgiveness? When God looks down from heaven and he says, Dave, you're a sinner, you need to believe in Christ as your Savior, what does God get in return? Uh, in a word, he gets nothing. Now we're going to talk about us giving him worship back as he's asked, but does he get some payment? No. Christ paid the penalty. In Romans chapter 5, For when we were still without strength, when we were without strength, we had no ability to contribute to the process. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Last week, my granddaughter Kylie, if you're new, you haven't had a chance to meet the most beautiful grandchild in the world. She'd be right around here later on. About that big. A uh, year and, and change old. 
she had on a cute new coat. And I said to my daughter, Stephanie, boy, that's a nice new coat. Where'd that come from? And she looked at me and said, mom bought it. And I thought, of course she did. Why wouldn't she? I should have said, no, we bought the new coat. (laughs) It's not hard to spend money on your grandchildren, especially when they are cute. All Kylie has to do is hold out a little hand. And you think, let me get my wallet out. What can I do for you? (laughs) The candy jar is right in my office. You go right ahead. I never understood about spoiling children till now. Grandparents see the cuteness. Parents see the ugly (laughs) and the cute. (laughs) Grandparents see the cuteness and they want to bless their grandchildren. But that's not how it was when God forgave us. What God saw when he forgave us is what's written here in Romans 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They have practiced deceit. The poison of asps under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what God sees when he looks down and says, I'm going to forgive you. That's expensive love. It's not hard to love a lovable person. It's not hard to love a a, a cute little granddaughter. It's hard to love somebody like that. And yet that's what God did. When Jesus came into the world, he came into the world thinking, boy, these people are messed up. They need to be saved. I have to go and do this. The Apostle Paul got it. Look what he said about himself. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, and that word literally means to speak bad about God. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You may be here today and think, well, I'm not a sinner. The Apostle Paul, the man who wrote 12 books of the New Testament, looked at himself and he said, I am the chief of sinners. If you want to know if your salvation is real, ask, excuse me, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. God saw our dirty, rebellious, wicked souls And he determined to do what was needed, even though there was nothing good in us. And this brings us down to to our response to forgiveness, or the purpose. Why did God forgive us? There was something that he wants from us in return. And what he wants from us, I think, is well stated in, in 1 Corinthians 1. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 
There are numerous references in the New Testament to the doctrine of salvation, which essentially say this, and I'm going to paraphrase and pull some things together. You are either glorying in your own ability to save yourself, or you are glorying in Christ's work to save you. If we extrapolate that all the way out to standing before God at the judgment seat of heaven, it would go like this. I'm ready, God. Let's get this over with. And you stand there arrogantly to say, hey, I lived a good life. I did this. I did that. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And here I am. Whereas if I understand the Christian posture, it's more one of saying, here I am, Lord. Thank you for saving me. Otherwise, I could not even stand before you. Him that glories, let him glory in the Lord. If you want to know if your salvation is real, ask this question. Who do I honor in my concept of salvation? When I think about going to heaven, the ultimate element of salvation, when I think about living a good life right now, the temporal element of salvation, who gets the glory? Do I pat myself on the back and say, I'm a pretty good guy? Or do I say, oh God, thank you for saving me. I'm not worthy. Am I looking forward to getting to heaven because of my work or because of the Lord's work? I've earned everything I've ever had. That's wrong. We've been given everything we've ever had. And so the purpose of salvation is lived out this way. First of all, we worship God by praising. We worship by praising our forgiving God. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, for we have no real earthly dwelling, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. The outside of the city reference is to a reference to the fact that Christ died outside the city. They would never put somebody to death inside the city because that execution would taint or make the whole city unclean. So they had their executions outside the city. And so he is, he is not only rejected by virtue of his death, but he's rejected by the fact that his death was outside the city as though the people inside are going, we're better than you. And said, he's out there and he suffered out there. So let us go out to him and let us stand there by the cross. Let us be willing to say, yes, we are of his, of his group. We are of his kind. We are here with him. And he says, let us go out and praise him. Worship should be a natural, normal, consistent part of the godly life. Not just what we do in church, but every day in our personal time, in the word, in prayer, every Sunday when we gather together, all the time when good things happen in life. Is worship part of your life? Are you continually offering the sacrifice of praise? Or are you regularly patting yourself on the back for how great you are? 
God says we ought to be worshipers. If we really understand how sinful we were and how great the forgiveness of God is, we should fall at his feet and be worshipers. And then he goes on in this Hebrews passage to say, we also worship by acting like God. Reads this way. After he says, sacrifice of our lips giving, the fruit of our lips giving praise to his name, he says, do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obviously, sharing has to do with sharing the stuff of our life, whether it's money or our house or food or whatever it is. Doing good is one of, one of those small summaries of the whole Christian life. The word good works is used repeatedly in the New Testament. Here he says, don't forget. In other words, some people would say, oh, I never miss a worship service. I'm here singing the praises of the Lord. But when they go outside the church doors, there's not too much worship going on. He says, come and worship here at home, wherever you are, and then go out and do good. This doing good includes the whole Christian life, but it seems appropriate to me to include today the specific element of good that mirrors God's good. And it's from Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We made the distinction earlier that human forgiveness does not exact a penalty from the offended party. The reason is because of our model of forgiveness. God said to Dave Lunsford, I forgive you because he paid the price. I don't have to pay. God says you need to go out now and forgive one another without exacting a penalty. We need to forgive like God forgave. God expects us to reflect His forgiving character to others. On the Sunday evening that Jim and I were with Helen Steele in Greece, we attended a memorial service for a woman who taught at the Bible college. She and her husband both taught there. The service was hosted by a church that had recently begun sharing facilities in another, with another church, and this church was located in downtown Athens. And Helen had never been to this church before. And it really made me feel good to see how she found the church because she did it the same way I would do it, by driving around and around and slowly eliminating all of the other places in Athens <laughs> where the church did not exist. <laughs> this is a little tougher in Athens than it is here because if, if you drive around Ferndale, pretty soon you'll see church after church after church real distinctive. In Athens, a church looks like two doors in the middle of a block of other doors. And you come up in, and it's a building about this big, maybe a little shorter up here, but about this size. But from the street, if there wasn't a sign, you'd never know there was a church there. So we're driving around, and Helen's manhandling this car, and pretty soon she'd see a student from the school who she knew was going to the service. So she'd okay, yeah, we're in the right. So we'd turn around the block, and she'd see somebody else, and she'd turn down there. And I, I, if I'm lying, I'm dying. <laughs> I thought, what in the world? 
She knew the name of the street where we were headed, but she really didn't know how to get there. <laughs> we did make it eventually. At some point, she parked, <laughs> and we walked, and there we were. <sighs> and we told her she might consider investing in a GPS unit for her car. <laughs> oh, no, they don't work. <laughs> the GPS says, you're here, there's where you're going, here's the most direct route between these two places. Could I suggest to you, friends, that you can wander around at Christmas time looking for meaning, or you can get a hold of God's heart, God's heart, which begins with forgiveness through the work of Christ. And I want to ask you if you're celebrating that, this year at Christmas, because that is the heart of Christmas. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us not to wander around on our own, ignoring your clear signposts in the Scripture. Help us to grasp your forgiveness and help us to worship your forgiveness. I pray in Christ's name, amen.